0: Oh, <laughs> Offering my most loving panams at Bhagwan's Lotus Feet Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series A Triune Pilgrimage This is Prem and this is the Gita series A program in which we go through the Bhagavad Gita verses In detail, in conjunction with what Swami has written about it in His beautiful work, The Gita Vahini We are in the 7th chapter And... Uh, This also marks the two years of the Gita Vahini. I started sometime in mid-September, two years ago. So thank you for being with me in this journey and thank you for giving me this opportunity to go through the Bhagavad Gita in such detail and I'm ever so grateful to all of you for that. We are somewhere in the middle of the seventh chapter. We completed two verses last time, verses 12 and 13. We'll of course start with a short summary of those verses and what we spoke of last time. We are in that portion of the Gita where after Krishna having spoken that he can be found in these various elements, in the various individuals that we interact with, he goes on to say, if God is so omnipresent, if divinity is so ubiquitous, what makes us miss seeing him? Why is it that we are not able to perceive divinity in our everyday life? So it is that portion that we are going to go through. As I just mentioned, we went through two shlokas, 12 and 13 of the 7th chapter. In the 12th, Krishna makes a mention of the three gunas. In the preceding portion, Krishna spoke of how he can be recognized in various entities in nature. From that portion, one might come away with the idea that only some portions of all these entities is divine and Rest of it is probably not divine or atma and anatma as it is often uh, described in Vedanta. So Krishna clarifies at this point in shloka number 12 by saying this entire world, be it sattvika, rajasika or tamasika, whatever be its nature, don't forget that all of that comes from the same divine. Then Krishna goes on to add in that same shloka, Natu aham teshu, but I am not in them. They are in me. All these are various names and forms, and they all depend on God. But God does not depend on any of these for his existence. He is much beyond this. So his existence is independent of whether the world is or it isn't. The best example, as we saw, is the relationship between clay and clay pots. Clay existed much before man started making pots, much before even man came into existence. And clay will continue to exist even if we as a race stop making pots. In that sense, every clay pot depends on clay for its existence, but it is not the other way around. Clay is in the pot, but in a true sense, clay is... What we refer to as a pot is a very brief existence of a particular name and form in the continuum that we refer to as clay. And that is the idea so very succinctly put across in that one statement. Natu aham teshu, I am not in them, they are in me. These names and forms appear in this continuum called divinity and vanish. In the 13th, Shloka Krishna says, All beings that belong to this world are deluded by this threefold nature and hence do not recognize God. So as we were discussing the last time, it is clear that the world that distracts and deludes has been created by God himself. Swami says in the Gita Vahini that what you refer to as Maya or delusion which hides God from your vision It is I who wield it. right? I read out a portion from the Gita Vaini. I'll make a few references to that again today. So very clearly Swami says, it is I who wield the Maya. So that brings us to the question that I left you with last time. Why should God create separation and delusion in the first place? And having created it, why give us this challenge to overcome this duality and reach that oneness? If oneness is what, is supposed to be then why divide at all why create why create a world and then challenge the indwellers of the world to recognize the unity with the divine this is nothing but a rephrasing of a very fundamental question which is why did god create the world right and if you're a spiritual aspirant and you've been reading a little bit of spirituality vedanta or any other form of philosophy at some point you would have been faced with this fundamental question that comes from within. Why all the bother, right? Why didn't God create the whole world? As I was mentioning to you last time, there are many listeners who have asked us this question, who have asked me personally this question. A lot of youngsters finally ask this question because it's understandable, right? It is quite a legitimate question to prop up in the mind. What I'm trying to give is a very brief explanation. One which I generally give to whoever asks me this question. But I'm under no illusion that this is going to be a very convincing answer, and this is not going to be the last time that you're going to wonder about this question. But this is what I understand from what I've heard from Swami, what I've read in Swami's works. In Sanatan Dharma, we use a very interesting word when we talk about anything that God does, which includes creation too. We refer to that state on that phrase or that word I'm sorry as Leela. The whole creation we say is God's Leela and the meaning of that word Leela is simply play. It so happened that one day I was coming out of the building where I live in and I was coming down towards uh, the ashram for my morning work and just as i come out of my building there's actually a short passageway and that passageway leads to the main road and there are two gates on either sides of this passageway right and those gates are never closed because that passage is used so often during the day that nobody bothers to close the gate and it's always open so one day when i happened to come down i saw that that gate was closed and if ever that gate is closed it must be because there is some construction work happening or they've closed it for some Repair work which is going on. So I peeped through the gate and I found that there was nothing happening, no construction, no workers around. So I was wondering why that gate was closed. And when I looked around, I just found that a few children were running around and they came and they started playing with the gate. And it was quite clear that during their, play, their playing around, they must have closed this gate. So even as I was opening that gate and going through it, there was one elderly lady behind me and she looked at me and she said, why is the gate closed because she also had the same dilemma is it some work going on why is the gate closed so i just gave a gentle laughter and i said you know the children are playing so you know they they must have closed the gate then she didn't stop with that she said but why is the gate closed i said because the children must have been playing and they must have closed it but why did they close the gate i found that a very weird question that this elderly lady was asking me because when you say that they were playing, I feel that's the answer for the question. Why do children do certain things while they play? I don't think there's any answer to that. Because whenever we say a play, a game, what is it? A few of us get together, we create rules. Those rules are not bound by any statutes of uh, law or anything like that. We create rules out of nothing and we constrain ourselves by those rules and we play a game. And when we feel the time is up and we have had enough of the game, we end the game. So the rules also go with the game. And I think it is for this reason that they use this word leela or play when it comes to talking about why God created the world. Because the moment you say it's a play, there is no further question. It's not that there cannot be further questions, it means that there are no further answers that this mind. Can comprehend and that is the reality with the present state of thinking and understanding that we possess as human beings I don't think it is ever comprehensible this reason why God created world and that's probably the only reason why even Swami doesn't bother answering this question to us directly or you're not likely to find an answer to this in any authentic source of scriptures or Vedanta or whatever it is Because there is no answer that this mind can possibly comprehend. In fact, there is a very beautiful excerpt from a discourse that Swami delivered in 1991. We came across this when uh, we were doing the Shravanam Mananam program where we go through Swami's discourses. Swami says in one of those discourses, and I'd quote two, three lines from there, He says, Take, for instance, the example of a green gram seed. When it is sown, it sprouts into a plant and produces numerous pods with green gram piece. It does not know the origin of its existence as a green gram seed or the history of its ancestors. But when you put a seed in your mouth and munch it, its life comes to an end. Likewise, we do not know our origin but we can determine our future. No one can tell how man came into existence and the circumstances of all origin. But his future is dependent on the sadhanas performed by him. End of quote. A very profound and telling excerpt from Swami's discourse where he says that there is no point in wondering where it all began, why it all began. It has only relevance as much as probably it occupies our mind and keeps it engaged in self inquiry, right? Swami also says that you should ask this question, Who am I and where do I come from? Because that becomes a form of self inquiry. But if one thinks that there is an answer that this mind can find and this mind can comprehend, I think that's probably not the case. As Swami very beautifully puts it there, what we must be preoccupied with is the question, How do I put an end to the cycle? And that is what sadhana is all about. That is what we are trying to understand even from this text that we are going through, the Bhagavad Gita. The next portion or the next shloka, Krishna is going to speak of another very interesting concept in Vedanta. And uh, if I say that I have understood this concept and I have mastered it enough to explain it to you, that would be anything but the truth. It's a very complex theme. But we will try to explore it as much as possible given the constraints of time and given the constraints of the context we are talking about it in. We will listen to the next shloka that is the 14th shloka. We will listen to it as always in Brother Shyam's voice. I will give you a brief meaning of that and then we will discuss what Krishna says there.
1: hesha gunamayi mama maya duratya prapadyante
0: since this divine maya of mine which is constituted by the gunas is difficult to cross over those who take refuge in me alone cross over this maya so that's the 14th verse of the 7th chapter the previous shloka ended by saying that people are unable to see God as they are distracted and deluded by the creation that is made of these three gunas Sattva, Rajas and Tamas so that begs the question why are we deluded and more importantly what can we do to not be deluded and see beyond this creation In this verse and the following ones, Krishna is going to address this very critical question. I had read out a few lines from the Gita last week and I also made a reference to it in the summary where Swami writes about this portion of the Bhagavad Gita. Swami very clearly discusses the role of Maya in all of this. And there Swami said very clearly, between me and this universe, there moves Maya. It is in this shloka that Krishna says it is Maya that makes people lose sight of the Lord who is the very essence of everything, who is the seed, bhijam in all. So Krishna introduces this concept of Maya in this particular shloka where he says Esha, this daivihi, verily divine, gunamai mamamaya my maya which is made of gunas duratyaya is difficult to cross over in a very simple statement krishna reveals so much about this maya he calls it daivi divine he says maya is divine and he says mama maya he says my maya these two statements reveal that maya is not a demonic entity. It is not something to be abhorred or disliked. Swami had said in that Gita Vaini passage that I read out last time, it is of the same substance as me. And it is my creation and it is under my control. And it is made of the three gunas, much like the rest of creation, as Krishna said in that shloka that we went through. So maya is extremely complicated. It's a very complex concept if you ask me. And it is not easy to speak of it. Swami would refer to Maya as a mother sometimes. I was once speaking to an old student, a very elderly person, who was telling me that in an interview that he had the opportunity to be in, Swami was speaking at length about Maya and he said, See, oftentimes people misunderstand Maya as being something which is evil and which is against God. Maya is mother, Swami said. She is in fact a devotee of God, and she is the one who nourishes creation. And in these words, you know, Swami kept on speaking so highly of Maya, and Swami said, I mean Swami spoke of her as one of his dear devotees. So this student, when he was telling me this, he said that he was so impressed with what Swami had said that uh, ever since in any bhajan, if the lines Maya Vinashaka or Maya Nashaka comes, he said that I, you know, I generally don't sing those lines because I felt that Swami is not a Maya Vinashaka, he is he's after all the way he spoke about Maya, I did not feel like saying these things again. But traditionally we speak of Maya as being vile, something that is the cause for all our worries and woes, and more importantly, something that keeps us away from God. Even here, Krishna is saying that Maya is very difficult to overcome and it is the reason why we are all deluded. In Swami's Jnana Vahini, Swami speaks of Maya as the mother of wisdom. Swami says that Jnana is born of Maya. So you can see how conflicting the descriptions of Maya are. Maya is the obstacle, but Maya is also the mother. Maya is the one who is as divine as the Lord Himself, has been created by the Lord Himself. But then we speak of it as something because of which we are not able to reach the Lord. The point is, it is not easy to describe Maya. So in a sense, Maya is another name for Prakriti from whatever Swami has been saying here and whatever Krishna has been saying. Because clearly Krishna says that it is Gunamahi, it is made of the three Gunas, Sattva, Rajas and Tamas. So in that sense, When we say Aparaprakriti, when we say the Lord's Swabhava or when we say Maya, I think these three are the same entity but spoken of based on the characteristic that you are referring to or the nature of that entity that you are describing. When we say Aparaprakriti, we are referring to the limited nature compared to God. Right? As we saw, apara and para suggest that God is unlimited, but the prakriti is limited. So when you say apara-prakriti, you're speaking of nature having a very limited quality. When we say swabhava, it means it's a projection made of the three gunas. We are referring to the changing nature of this prakriti, right? nature of nature, if I could put it that way. Right? The very fact that God is unchanging, but Prakriti is undergoing modifications, the Shadvikaras, as we spoke of last time. So, when you say nature is Lord's Swabhava, we are referring to something that is undergoing modification. And when we say Maya, we are talking of the deluding nature of this Prakriti. The Gunamai Prakriti effectively hides the Lord and makes us believe in multiplicity. And when it plays this role of delusion, probably we refer to it as Maya. And it is for this peculiar nature that Maya is very difficult to talk about and I don't think in any length of time that I have in my disposal, I'll be able to give a comprehensive idea of what Maya is. Not that I know and I can't tell you. I don't even know that much to give you a comprehensive description of Maya. But the thing is, If you believe in it, it is there. If you develop the conviction that it is not there, then it does not exist. And that makes this Maya even more complicated. Swami says in, uh, I think it's in Gita Vaini, Swami beautifully says, It is like the darkness in the room. What a beautiful analogy. Swami says, Maya is like the darkness in the room. If you just study that analogy that Swami gives, darkness in the room, Darkness does not have an existence of its own. The darkness of the room is there because there is a room. There is something called a room, so there is something called the room's darkness. But that darkness which does not have an existence of its own, ends up hiding the room itself. Swami further adds in that passage, in in that portion where He gives this analogy, He says, it is like moss growing on the water, hiding the water itself like the cataract growing in the eye, hiding the vision, maya or delusion attaches itself to whoever helps it grow. A very beautiful statement, delusion or maya attaches itself to whoever helps it grow. And that's why if you believe in it, it is. If you develop the conviction that it does not exist, it does not. One of the classic examples that is often given in uh, descriptions of Maya, is that of a mirage in a desert. There is no water, but it appears like there is water there. The one who is ignorant, Swami says, will run towards it and when, what happens when you run towards it? You're already thirsty, you're already suffering. You end up suffering more. But the one who is wise, when we say wise, a person who knows the nature of mirage, he will see it but he will not be troubled by it. He will not be deluded by it. So it is very difficult to speak of Maya as being bad. It is created by the will of God. It is wielded by God too. As I said, I know I'm not going to be able to do justice to this theme of Maya right now. But I'll read one passage from one of Sami's discourses. I think it's a very revealing description of this Maya. It is it speaks of the relationship between Atma, Paramatma, Prakriti, Maya, and the three gunas. I will try to break it up and explain. Let's see if it gives us some more clarity on this theme. This is a discourse that Swami delivered on 7th of September 1985. Swami says, and I quote The reality which sustains the cosmos and the cell is one. It is the all pervasive consciousness named Brahman. When this infinite vastness is spoken of in relationship to the Jagat or the cosmos, it is called Paramatma. And when it is conceded as the core of individual beings, it is the Atma. All three are one entity, but they appear different and delude the short sighted. This characteristic is known as maya end of quote so here swami states that there is one and there is always one brahman alone we speak of it as being brahman paramatma and atma depending on with the relationship to what we are speaking about it but in our minds as of now we see that all these as being distinct and this characteristic of seeing it is as being different even though it is not is what is referred to as Maya. So a very beautiful portion there, Swami very clearly says, the same reality, the same Brahman, when you look at it as being expansive and filling everything, it is Brahman. It is the all-pervasive consciousness. When you think of it as being something that sustains this world, it is Paramatma. And when you think of it as something that is within you and activating you, It is Atma, but all three are the same. And it is Maya which makes us see Atma, Paramatma and Brahman as being separate. Swami goes on to say, and I quote, The appearance or the power of diversification uses the three Gunas to embody itself differently. The Gunas urge man towards either knowing or desiring or working. When the urge to become, namely Maya, impels Brahman to project itself, it appears as Ishvara or God when associated with the Sattva guna, as Jivi a individual, when associated with Rajoguna, and as Prakriti when associated with Tamoguna. End of quote. This is a very important explanation that Swami gives. Brahman is absolute. To say that Brahman operates this universe would suggest that Brahman has doership, a desire to do or achieve something, which is not true based on the description of Brahman that we all have been going through. We had spoken about this even when we were discussing how the Atma is actually not the doer. It is the source of energy for all actions But since the Atma does not choose to do any of those actions, you cannot refer to it as a doer and so it does not have any karma attached to it. Similarly, Brahman does not wheel Maya. But Maya is given existence because of Brahman. And this Brahman, impelled by Maya, expresses itself as Ishvara, Jiva and Prakriti. When Brahman interacts with Sattva Guna, you have Ishvara. The idea of having a loving and caring God, a particular form that you worship, you worship him as Venkateshwara, or Swami, or Shirdi Baba, or Jesus, or whatever is the form that you give it. So Swami says that Ishta Devata, that Ishvara, that Lord that you worship, is when Brahman interacts with Sattva Guna, you have Ishvara. When this Brahman interacts with the guna of rajas or activeness, it gives the jivi or the jivatma, the individual who is restless to know, to achieve, to become, to gather, who craves you and me. And when the same Brahman interacts with tamas, the quality that is associated with inertia, that gives rise to prakriti. So Swami summarizes this whole concept with another very beautiful analogy in the following lines and he says Maya is the mirror in which Brahman is reflected as the personalized God man and nature. We are able to know Brahman through nature which is saturated with it or identifiable with it. End of quote. So Swami says, Maya is like a mirror and the same Brahman is reflected of it, appearing as three. But the most important point is, Maya also becomes a means to adore that same God. In this part of the Gita, Krishna has been referring to this aspect of nature, isn't it? How you can see God in the brilliance of the sun, In the taste of the water, in the pages of the fire, and so on and so forth. So, if you look at it that way, Maya plays this dual role. Yes, it deludes, but it is also the means to adore God. Because it is through this play of Maya and Sattva Guna that you have this idea that there is this form that I adore and I worship. When we talk of Swami in our relationship with our Swami, we say, Swami likes this. Swami does not like this. Today I am a vegetarian because Swami likes us to be vegetarians. I do not smoke or drink because I feel Swami doesn't like these habits. That doesn't mean that Swami is not in a person who has these habits. It does not mean that the food that a non-vegetarian eats is not digested by the same Vaishwanara who is divine. So we, what we are doing in all of this is we project likes and dislikes on God. God is Brahman and Swami is Brahman. He does not have any likes and dislikes. He does not choose sides. He does not say that I am only the antaratma of the good people. I am not the antaratma of the bad ones. No, He is Brahman. He is everywhere. But we project these likes and dislikes on God and thereby we are creating Ishwara. This specific divine personality or personalized Brahman, so to say and through this Maya we worship him and this is the very means to go beyond this Maya itself because Krishna says in the very next line in the Shloka how to get past this Maya after having said that my Maya is what is stopping you. He says ye prapadyante maya metam tarantite He says ye those Mameva in me alone Prapadyante take refuge Yeta Mayam this illusion Tarantite They cross over. So Krishna says those who have Prapatti, Prapadyante, those who have Prapatti or surrender to me, they transcend this Maya. With regard to Maya and the Lord. Swami would often give this very wonderful analogy and I'm sure most of you would have heard it. Swami would say there is a huge house. The owner of the house is somewhere deep inside in the inner quarters. At the gate of this residence, there is a big nasty bulldog. Swami would say the owner of the house is God and this dog at the gate is God's maya. It is extremely dangerous and almost impossible to cross this ferocious dog and go to the Lord. So he says there are only two options. Either you must become like the owner. Swami says you must have the conviction that you and the owner are in reality one and the same. In that case, the dog will not do anything to you. The dog will think that you are also the owner and will let you pass. The next option is you call out to the owner then the owner will come down and take you into the house. And Swami would say, when the owner is next to you, the dog will not hurt you. And once the dog realizes that you are close or dear to the master, Swami says, it will become friendly with you too. And Swami explains, the first path is that of wisdom or jnana and the second is that of bhakti which eventually leads to this prapati or surrender. And Swami very beautifully adds, he would say that, you know, you can call the master by any name. You can call him Rama, Krishna, Allah, Jesus, whatever it is. All names belong to him. As long as you have the conviction that you are calling the Lord, Swami says he will come and he will take you past this Maya. So in this shloka, Krishna very clearly states, what is the means to overcome this Maya, which seems like a quicksand, which kind of traps you. This statement that those who take refuge in me, those who surrender to me, they can overcome this Maya. And this is a reference to this dual nature of Maya. We will come to see that who get trapped in this Maya in the next Shloka Krishna is going to speak about that. But the same Maya can be used as a means to reach out to the Lord too. And when you do that, this Maya does not trouble you anymore. But this Mameva Prapadyante take refuge in me alone can also be misinterpreted. More than misinterpreted, it can be, I would say, underrepresented. It is not merely doing Namas Marana and Japam and Bhajans in that sense. When you say that, oh, you should adore me, you should worship me, especially when we say Prapatti. It's a very ritualistic concept in especially the Vaishnavite tradition. There is a ritualistic and traditional way of doing this Prapatti It is almost like an initiation into sannyasa. You'll be given a new name. The name will be some name of Lord Vishnu followed by the suffix Dasa. So it would be Krishna Dasa or Venkateshwara Dasa or Ramanuja Dasa or something like that. So which means you've been given a new identity and then you will wear certain insignia on your body. You know, the Namams and the Shankachakra on your shoulders. And things like that, and there are some ritualistic pujas that you will have to perform every day. It is not this prapati that Krishna is referring to. In fact, he clarifies this in the next shloka, but he does not talk about those who have surrendered in the next shloka. He talks about those who are lost in the maya. And I think without directly making a reference to somebody who has surrendered, Krishna is saying what is a prerequisite if you wish to surrender to God. Yes, if you surrender to God, yes, if you turn to God, Maya does not touch you. But who turns to God and who does not turn to God? That Krishna speaks of in the next shloka and it's a very important shloka because it is one of those shlokas where Krishna says how you should not be. Right? So we'll listen to the 15th shloka in Brother Sham's voice and then we'll discuss about it after that.
1: Namam Dushkruti no moodhaha, Rapadhyante naradhama, Maya Pahrutanana, Asuram Bhava, Ma Shrita.
0: The evildoers and the deluded, who are the lowest of men, do not seek me. They whose knowledge is destroyed by illusion follow the ways of the demons. That's the 15th verse of the 7th chapter. Krishna in this shloka speaks of those who fail to take refuge in God. Though he does not say it that way, if you wish to take refuge in God and if you wish to go past this maya, then the lesson is you should not be like this. I'm not saying the idea of worshipping itself is not important. I'm not saying that propathy has got nothing to do with worshipping or the fact that turning to God has got nothing to do with Namasmarana and Bhajan and Japa and all of that. But this is something more fundamental than any of those steps. In fact, in the next shloka, when we discuss, we will see the importance of all of that relying on Ishwara as we understand and Dor. But even for that, there is some basic criteria that is necessary and that Krishna explains in the shloka. He says, Namam mudhaha prapadyante naradhamaha Those naradhamaha, lowest of men, who are mudhaha, deluded, and do not take refuge in me. He says, those people who do not take refuge in me who are deluded, who are the lowest among men, they can be recognized by the following adjectives. And what are those adjectives? Dushkritinaha evil doers by Maya jnanaaha, whose knowledge has been stolen Asuram Bhavam those that have resorted to a demonic nature. As we discussed, Maya has this dual nature. If you fall for it, it will delude you further. The more deluded you get, the more mistakes you tend to do, and the more you get entangled in this Maya. And the more you get entangled, more unpleasant actions you will end up performing. So Krishna says, Dushkritinaha, those who do Evil deeds. And these evil deeds are performed because the Maya or the delusion has stolen the Jnana. Mayaya Apahrita Jnana. These are people whose knowledge and good thinking or wise thinking has been stolen by Maya. Mayaya Apahrita Jnana. The truth is, I am complete, I am perfect. Right? This is the truth because I am the same Supreme Parabrahman. But this Maya makes me feel like a Jeevi or a Jivatma. That is what we saw in what Swami explained. The same Brahman which is all pervasive and all powerful reflects off Maya and appears to be a weak individual. And when I think of myself as this tiny weak entity, there is a sense of lacking... Limitedness, and with this lacking in limitedness comes desire and greed and fear and anxiety. And these qualities or these emotions lead me to do dushkrita or wrong actions. And as we saw in the earlier chapter, these actions come to shape me and my nature. One stray bad thought or bad action does not make you a dushkritina or one who is, as Krishna represented, the lowest among men, those random bad actions that I'm sure all of us are performing every now and then, I can at least speak of that for myself, those are signs of weakness, right? Those are signs of weakness and that weakness is also a sign of Maya. But when I make it a habit, when I become a asuram bhavam ashritaha, one whose nature is becoming demon-like, what is that nature? What I want, what I desire, I take. There is no regard for propriety. There is no regard for the means of, or the process through which one has to acquire something that one desires. There is no respect for dharma. There is no patience and forbearance. That is the asura nature that Krishna is speaking about here. Asuram bhavam ashrataha One who takes refuge to this demonic nature It is not merely wanting something, but the process of acquiring what you want. The process of making yours what you have desired. In Gita Vaini Swami explains, This is not something that happens in one lifetime. It happens over many, many lifetimes. When one keeps accumulating demerits through wrong actions, one keeps going further and further away from God. One's mind is constantly kept occupied by sensual pleasures and worldly achievements. So the idea is, this basic goodness of a moral life, of sticking to dharma, is at the core of this shift in mind that Krishna is speaking about. We have maya which is standing in between us and God. And this maya is of dual nature. It is through this maya that we are able to worship. It is through this maya that we get deluded and we get lost. So what makes this maya behave in two different ways? The one who makes a habit out of doing wrong things. This maya creates desire in everyone, right? It makes you feel a limited person. It makes you feel that you are not that supreme Brahman. Because of that, there are desires. So this creation of desires is universal in, if you talk of the maya's effect on people. But having got these desires, do I take to any means to acquire what I desire? Or am I ready to follow only those means which are the right ones practicing patience and forbearance? That decides whether the maya is going to be deluding for you or the maya is going to become an opportunity or a gateway for you to reach out to God. Now we might ask, even though I am a devotee, I also am an illusion. I also think that I am this Jivatma. I also have desires and fears. I might not do immoral things, but I am also in delusion, isn't it? If somebody points out anything to me, I get upset about it. If I see somebody having something and I do not have it and I want it, that makes me restless. So even though I am a devotee and even though I am calling out to Swami and probably I would like to consider myself as someone who adores the divine, am I also not in delusion? Krishna explains that beautifully in the next one. What is the advantage of the deluded who turn to God? The disadvantage of the deluded who take to the wrong means was spoken of in this shloka. He's going to talk about those deluded who turn to God. I would say more than the shloka itself, Swami's explanation is so very beautiful and reassuring, the explanation that Swami gives in the Gita Vaini. But first we'll listen to the shloka itself. And this also happens to be a very popular shloka. The concept that is spoken of in the shloka is something that we very often find ourselves quoting. Swami has also spoken extensively about it. It speaks about classification of those who turn to God. We'll listen to the shloka the moment we listen to it. You'll know what I'm referring to and then we will discuss. And with that, we'll
1: wind up this week's program. Chatur vidha bhajante maam jana Sukrutino noorjuna arto jigna surarthar thi jnani chabharatar shabha.
0: Four kinds of virtuous ones worship me, O Arjuna, and they are the distressed, the seeker of knowledge, the seeker of wealth and the wise, O Lord of Bharatas. So this is the 16th shloka and you would have figured out why I said that this is one of the very popular shlokas from the Gita because Krishna speaks about the four kinds or four categories of devotees. In the last shloka, Krishna spoke about Dushkritinaha, evildoers. Over lifetimes they do bad or wrong actions. And bad karma takes them further and further away from the goal. And they get all the more deluded by this gunamai maya. In this shloka, Krishna speaks about sukratinaha, virtuous ones, who again have made it a habit to perform good deeds over many lifetimes. Dushkritinaha are those who have been doing wrong actions over lifetimes. Sukratinaha are those who have been doing the right actions over lifetimes and that has become their nature. Krishna says, Chaturvidha, four kinds or four types exist bhajante maam janaha among those who worship me Sukritino arjuna who are virtuous by nature, O Arjuna. As I was saying just before playing that shloka, Those who have turned to God also suffer from delusion. It is not that the moment you start worshipping God, you are not deluded anymore. They are also trapped in Maya and have desires and cravings that eventually lead them to fear and greed and anxiety and all of that. But as Krishna explains, there are two sets of people. Those who resort to Dushkrita or wrong deeds to fulfill their needs or protect their interests. And the other set always stick to sukrita or good deeds, even to satisfy the desires and the cravings that they have. Those who are in the second category, the sukrita category, eventually turn to God to fulfill these needs. And once they turn to God, you are calling out the master of the house to come and fetch you and take you beyond this bulldog. So, what are those four categories of virtuous ones who worship God? Artha, the distressed, meaning those who are in some crisis or in some pain and they are seeking relief. Jignasuhu, the seeker of knowledge. Artharthi, the seeker of wealth. This word, Artharthi, is made of two words, and though Arthi or Artha and Artharthi, sound a little similar, it's actually very different. For one, the Tha that is used in Artharthi is the second Tha. And it is made of two words, Artha meaning wealth and Arthin means having longing for. So Artharthi means who have longing for wealth or who is a seeker of wealth. But the scope of this Term "artharthi" can be widened based on the idea of artha itself. When we speak of the four purusharthas or the four pursuits of life, we speak of dharma, artha, kama, and moksha. There, artha is not just wealth. Everything that you wish to gather around yourself to feel secure. None of us want money because you know, we like the design of that paper or the color of the print of that currency. We want money because it gives us a certain power and security. It allows us to attain something else. It gives us a sense of security from uncertainties in life. It is one of the reasons for which we also seek friends and relatives around us, isn't it? It gives us a sense of security, a sense of fullness. So when we say Artha, it stands for this. It is not merely monetary. It stands for all the security that we seek in life. Because all of this constitutes our wealth in this life. Name, fame, friends, relatives, the goodwill that we earn. So when we say Artharthi, it is one who craves for all such wealth which makes one feel secure. Then the fourth category is of course the Jnani, Right? Those are the four categories that Krishna names. Artha, Artharthi, Jignasu and Jnani. Talking about Jignasu, the seeker of knowledge, I think it's a word that we must be familiar with by now. We have used it multiple times in the course of this series. A Jignasu is one who is wise enough to understand that there is something more to life than what meets the eye. And one is seeking that knowledge. He becomes a Jignasu, right? the one who has craving for knowledge. The fourth is nyani, the wise one. Right? It, I'm not going to speak much about Jnani. We've spoken a lot in the previous shlokas, previous chapters. But more importantly, Krishna is going to speak about Jnani in the next few verses. And he's going to speak of Jnani specifically in comparison with these three categories of people that he has spoken of. So we will take up Jnani when we come to that. But if you look at the other three categories artha, If you look at the nature of these three categories of people they are all deluded, they are all in Maya. Only when I think I am the body can I suffer pain. Only when I am deluded by body consciousness I can think that the well-being of the body is my well-being, isn't it? Similarly, a jignasu considers himself or herself ignorant and that is why the person seeks knowledge to think that I am ignorant is Maya, isn't it? I am that supreme knowledge itself I am Brahman I don't need to acquire knowledge so it is a delusion that a person thinks that I am ignorant and I need knowledge so a jignasu is also deluded similarly an artharthi And Arthati is under the delusion that he or she needs wealth to be complete, which again is Maya, because one is already the all-encompassing Brahman. So all these three categories, or all the devotees who fall under these three categories, are also people who are deluded. But as Krishna explains, because of their virtuous lives, because they are Sukritinaha, they turn to God to fulfil all these needs which have been created by Maya. They do not turn to the world or worse still, they do not take to wrong means to fulfill these needs. We'll maybe conclude by reading out a passage from the Gita Vaini as I said. The way Swami has explained this is so beautiful and so reassuring for all of us. Much of what Swami says is self-explanatory but I'll read it out and if there's anything to add, I'll add those comments and I'll end with that. This is what Swami says and I quote The Gita does not approve acts done with the intention to benefit therefrom or with the result as the prime motive. Only acts done without being concerned with the benefit that may accrue will free you from delusion. Now, a doubt may arise about the one who turns to the Lord to relieve their own suffering. The question may be raised whether such a person can be called a devotee at all. No single person on earth is free from some want or the other. Each depends on someone or the other to fulfil their wants, is it not? Now, to have such wants, wants relating to objects, is itself wrong. And to lean on a person like oneself to fulfil them is an even greater wrong. The one who turns to the Lord to relieve suffering turns not to people but to the Lord who is trusted and revered. That one implores him only to fulfill them. Although it is wrong to cultivate wants, such a person avoids the greater wrong of putting trust on inferior instruments. Such a person is superior, right? The superiority of this attitude can be seen when you know that it is not what you want that is important but whom you ask for its fulfilment. The goal is the Lord. He is the giver. His grace alone can confer boons. When this faith is fixed, you can be certain that the one who turns to God to relieve one's suffering is really worthy. End of quote. A wonderful description of this portion of the Gita. I cannot word it or explain it any better than that. Yes, turning to Swami or turning to God for anything that is mundane and worldly is probably not the best form of devotion that we must cultivate. But Swami says, everybody is deluded. Everybody is deluded and because of that, Everybody has desires, wants and needs. But among those who have these desires, wants and needs, that person who turns to God to fulfill these needs is better than those who turn to the world to fulfill these needs. Everyone is in need. Everyone is a seeker. The one who seeks from the world is a samsari. The one who seeks from God is a devotee. From This state of using God to fulfill our worldly needs, probably the state in which all of us are in, one must eventually graduate to using this world, our role in this world, our duty in this world to reach God. That becomes Karma Yoga. So to begin with, one must do karma, lead a dharmic life. Then, one very gradually turns to God when there are needs, when there are desires, when there are fears. Even as you pursue the dharmic means, like when you turn to God, if you you go for an exam and you pray to God before going for an exam saying, God, please take care, I should be able to clear this exam. It doesn't mean that you would not do your duty, right? You would still do your preparation, you will do your homework and whatever studying that you have to do. So, along with the dharmic pursuits of the means, you also turn to God. Eventually, the efforts that we put in, the actions that we pursue, they themselves will become acts of worship. And that point, you become a karma yogi. In that state, the world, the role that you play in the role, the duties that you dispense, all of that will become a means to reach God. So that is the essence of this portion. Yes, there is Maya. The Maya takes you away from God. But the same maya can take you towards God if you have been a virtuous person. From being a virtuous person, you become a devotee of the Lord who falls in any one of these categories, and eventually you will seek the Lord through the world. That is what Krishna has been saying in this portion of the Gita, where if you seek Him, if you look for Him, you will find him in the fire, you will find him in the moon, you will find him in the earth, you will find him in every beautiful smell that wafts through the air. So with those few words, thank you dear listeners for joining me and most humbly offer this effort at Swami's Lotus Feet. If you have any thoughts to share on this program, feel free to write to me. You can write to our feedback email, listener at radioside.org, you can write to me. Personally, if that suits you better, you can send us your feedback through our WhatsApp number. Till I meet you all next time, Take care, keep safe. Jay